Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. So hey, it's Friday. We haven't posted an episode on Friday before, but as you guys will no doubt know from our intros, we have been consistently promoting the Lincoln Network where I work and the Lincoln Network's Reboot Conference where Sagar and I are going to be hosting a bunch of really interesting conversations on November 6th, 9th, and 10th. So in honor of the conference and do a little promotion of the sort of work that we're going to be doing, we are going to be promoting and airing bonus episodes of The Realignment for the next few Fridays. So this is a good sort of chance for us to promote the conference and Lincoln's work, but also to try out different forms of content that we could see what you guys are all really interested in. So for this week's conversation, I'm speaking with Jared Dicker, who is the Vice President of Commercial Technology and Development at The Washington Post. So what's so interesting about Jared is that he's worked in basically every single sphere of the media that we've sort of tried to focus on, especially as that same industry goes through a lot of different transitions. So he started as a journalist covering the music industry. He then went to the Huffington Post before it sold to AOL. And then he spent a bunch of time working in the sort of ad tech space. And he then actually led a company focused on using the blockchain to impact the news industry. Now he's at the Washington Post. So he's really got a great background and perspective across all different aspects of the industry. And what we're basically talking about today is his interest in the future of the way media companies are structured in a time when there's always different options for creators, where you're sort of seeing Substack, the idea of going independent from sort of a major publication like the New York Times or New York Magazine, in the case of Andrew Sullivan. So what's so interesting about Jared's work is that Jared both understands the trend that's driving people to sort of leave the mainstream legacy media, but he's also interested in how it can be that media companies themselves can change to be much more accommodating. So the way to think about this episode is it's basically putting the meat on the bones of our conversation back with Nathan Bachez of the Everything Bundle that we had back in August and our conversation with Andrew Scholes a few weeks ago about how independents are going to sort of work in this era. So the key thing is that Jared is going to be joining me at Reboot on November 10th. We're going to talk about the future of the creator economy. And this one-on-one conversation is basically an expanded version of that conversation. So if this is enjoyable for you, if this is interesting, um, be sure to go to rebootconference.org, sign up for the Reboot Conference, and a huge thank you to Lincoln for not only supporting us, but really helping us get our our voices out there and go in depth for other topics. So with all that, let's go into the episode. Jared Dicker, welcome to the realignment. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So the best way to start any conversation about the future of media is to ask you whether you're optimistic or you're pessimistic, because sort of the optimism, and the pessimism sort of seems to determine specific sort of governmental entrepreneurial choices people sort of think. So what's your sort of perspective? Yeah. Um, I, uh, I mean, I am, I am absolutely an optimist um, when it comes to uh, what's happening in the media space. I mean, I do believe that, we consistently need to challenge ourselves and think about how we should be structured and what businesses should look like. And I think we've seen uh, very clearly that complacency um, in this industry moves a lot faster, right, than, <laughs> than, um, than non-complacency or speed, right? So I think there needs to be pressure uh, put on 
folks that are building in this space, whether it's tech or media or platforms, um, thinking about how to drive a better business, but have to be um, cautiously optimistic while being driven by pessimism, right? Like I think, <laughs> I think you'll see like in a lot of conversations today, um, you know, there's a lot of gloom and doom around, you know, many large topics, whether that's local news or whether that's, um, you know, large media companies or whether that's, you know, specific kind of niches or genres within those media companies. Um, but I think that being able to identify that really gives us an opportunity to think about how it should evolve. So people may say that that's pessimism. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, it is a drive or encouragement towards optimism. Um, but I do think that if you don't write challenge or disrupt yourselves, right, it's going to happen from the outside. And I think especially the news business learned that, you know, a very, very, very hard way over the past two decades. I think we're kind of in an inflection point right now, which I'm sure we'll dive into, um, which is kind of another moment where we could identify things that aren't necessarily going ideal or areas of new opportunity and how each area of the industry is looking to capitalize on that. Um, I'd say capitalize is an important point too, because I think many people um, aren't necessarily taking advantage or thinking about how to take advantage when it comes to their business. They're like essentially like watching it go by or just hoping that things go away. So I think a lot of different things will happen, but really roundabout way to answer your question that I think optimism needs to be driven by pessimism when you're building in the media business. No, and that's and that's really helpful. And this actually leads to a good way of introducing your background because I thought what I loved about looking at your biography, starting at the Huff Post, you know, poet, time, you know, at Time, like the actual Time magazine, and now sort of back at the Washington Post, is you sort of charted the course of like the media narrative, right? So like what when did you originally start working at the Huffington Post? Was this like when yeah. it started or sort of towards the before it got bought by AOL? Yeah, it's so funny. People people say my background is insanely schizophrenic, but I'm always in every conversation <laughs> that's been <laughs> happening. But I think I think that's because I'm literally a student of media. I love it. I obsess over it. Um, and because of that, I'm able to uh, identify early on trends or opportunities, and hopefully, if I'm not working in them, be able to contribute to the conversation or be a part of them. So yes, uh, I. I always love kind of talking about the background of how I got into the Huffington Post because it really highlights my accidental fall <laughs> into the media business. I started as a music journalist. Uh, I always loved creating. Uh, I really wanted to be a musician, but I was pretty shitty at playing any instrument. So I felt that the next best bet was being able to write um, and kind of follow follow that art and um, you know kind of be a part of it culturally by writing about it. Um, the job at the Huffington Post was an interesting one. Uh, I found that my music journalism career was very exciting, um, but not very lucrative. So I had to find a real job, which many in media and journalism can can probably relate to, especially in the earlier years. Um, and I actually applied for a job on Craigslist to the Huffington Post. Uh, I wanted to be an editor. They didn't want me to be an editor, uh, but they basically came to me and said, look, we're trying to think about new ways to build uh, our business, what makes us unique to our readers, what makes us unique to advertisers. Again, even a decade ago, subscriptions really weren't even a topic of conversation. Yeah. yeah, exactly, at the time. Um, so uh, I was basically like, sure, right? <laughs> I came in there as an individual contributor, uh, focusing on what we were calling social marketing, but it was really a, a fancy way of what we now call native advertising or creative advertising. Um, and I really tried to like look at what made us unique from a Huffington Post perspective. And at that time, it was really about our software. Uh, we 
as a business weren't necessarily the best at creating content or the best at breaking news or the best at even uh, analyzing news, uh, but we were the best at discovery, right? We invested very heavily in having a CMS that allowed all of our content to win in search, uh, allowed it to go very far in uh, social share and social discovery. And when I thought about what that means for advertisers or our business, uh, what a better application for brands and marketers that are looking to reach audiences than the best software in the world that is being used for content to reach audiences. So we built an entire business around it, which is now known as native advertising. I don't know if I invented native advertising, but I was definitely one of the founding, founding fathers and sisters <laughs> of that movement. Um, and uh, I realized then, I think even more so than kind of the success and excitement that happened at the Huffington Post and becoming the largest media company and selling to AOL, um, was that when you are looking to build in the media business, the bar is really low, right? And again, going back to your first question, uh, <laughs> whether, whether I'm an optimist or a pessimist, um, me saying the bar is pretty low is an optimistic uh, point of view because I think that the opportunity is there, right? For anyone who wants to come in and think about uh, opportunities that they could build, whether that's for the media company they work at or brands or consumers, they're really, even now, a decade later, there hasn't been enough experimentation or thought going into the business of media that's gone into the creation of media, right? And yeah. we kind of, right? And we see that. We see that today when whenever there's a challenger to the media business, uh, it often starts with a tool, right? Whether that's Medium or Substack or what's happening on platforms, but eventually it becomes the business, right? And legacy media companies have to think about how to adapt or adhere to that business. And if we put as much attention, right, and, and investment in thinking about how we could build a better product for readers, for consumers, um, as we think about products that we could build for creators, I think this industry really turns into a much different place, especially if that's led by um, companies that are supposed to be focusing on all three. So uh, the biggest lesson I'd say from the Huffington Post days was really um, the opportunity is there to build a better environment if you uh, put the right people in place and, you know, kind of have the right positive mindset in order to kind of break through barriers, then the opportunities are endless. And I think I've been very lucky to be able to um, practice that and repeat that in every endeavor that I've had over the past decade, which has been many, um, and still can, <laughs> and still continue to do so. The thing that's interesting, though, about the HuffPost story is sort of how it ends near sort of your end. So it, it, the HuffPost actually sells to AOL, what, like 300 million or something like that. So that's a decent exit if you invested in the company. But what you sort of see happen, you know, this history, of course, this is more for our listeners who are jumping into the media business for the first time. You then see a bunch of venture-backed companies Mike, Vice takes on heavy investment, Vox sort of builds up with the idea that they could get a big exit, but in many ways, those exits don't even sort of come. So can you sort of talk about your sort of perception of how the next three or four years of the media business go? Because that's what leads into pessimism. Because if you look at that HuffPost exit in 2011, that seems to be this really optimistic story. We can get really good at search engine optimization. I think the story I always love is, weren't, wasn't HuffPost the whole like you search what time is the Super Bowl and then you guys like had an article and then that was the article that your CMS would put up yep. there. So if you were looking at the emergence of Facebook and Google, that's optimism, but very quickly that goes to pessimism. So like sort of exp explicate what sort of happens at least there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's so right on. And I think there's a few different themes that, that we should hit on. So, so I guess for those that are somewhat new, um, 
there was this thing called investor story time um, that kind of came about and I think was I think was defined, I forgot who, who, who actually defined it, but basically came out in like 2010, 2011, the phrase. And that phrase was basically built um, with the mindset of what was happening in digital media, which was advertising was a very lucrative business that was tied to scale. And if you were a large platform that was driving that scale, you know, you were, you were cashing out on a lot of advertising dollars. Um, but if you were an investor, and you were looking to invest in a media company, you were essentially putting money up front, right? With the hopes that these media companies were then going to be able to build tools, build content scale, and then it was gonna return tenfold, right? Which is kind of like what we saw. Um, and the emergence of a lot of these companies, right? Like Buzzfeed and Mike and Vox, um, were basically kind of coming out around that time of venture story time. If you could build a platform and you could build audience, then you can monetize it via advertising. And to the point that you made, you know, Huffington Post exiting to AOL and even in later years, Business Insider having a very, very, very successful exit to Axel Springer, um, kind of all, all, all aligned with that thesis. Um, but there's a bunch of trends, right? And things that when you look back in hindsight, are incredible um, to kind of think about that these were the strategies that we put in place versus how we think now. Um, one of which was to your example of like when you'd search what time is it or did Michael Jackson die was one I remember. We won that search result when Michael Jackson died and people Googled Michael Jackson's dead, you know, we were the number one and it was like insane amount of traffic. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting to think about what that means because what that meant from a consumer perspective at that time is that no one really looked at the URLs, right? When you Googled or when you were on social and a friend shared something, you would look at the headline and if it was interesting, you would click it, right? The game was about how can you enable convenience? How could you build more efficiency to give people what they're looking for faster and allow them to kind of, you know, uh, um, get to that content quicker. Um, and that world sounds insane now, right? Because if you were to Google something or if a friend had sent you a URL or if you were on social, the first thing you look at now is the domain URL to be like, is yeah. this, if this is Legit. a news article, right? Yeah. Like, is it, is, it, is it from WAPO? Is it from the New York Times? Sadly, very arguable right now. If you saw HuffPost, you may not click it, right? Where like a decade ago you would. And the idea of reputation behind brands wasn't as valuable as convenience, right? Like back then, if you could reach the user first, if you can enable that engagement, if you can make that journey quicker, then they were gonna click on your content and we were rewarded there. A decade later, it's the inverse. Now yeah. you're really subscribing or only following certain brands that you trust, um, no matter how it's being sent to you. And the way that that old world works is completely different. Um, we were also um, basically, like, I also love the, you know, the frustrations with platforms, you know, a, de a decade ago, we were, we were content companies that were building content for these platforms, right? The goal was to get this content shared. Uh, I remember we built a function um, right after HuffPost, maybe at Rebel Mouse, but like part of the same family, which was based on how that user came in. So if Marshall mm -hmm. came in from Pinterest, okay, and found this Dodo article, this is very 2000. I love how 2012, 13, that conversation is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like based on how you came in, we would change your social share bar. So if I knew Marshall came from Pinterest, but if my social share bar was usually Facebook, Twitter, 
Pinterest. If I knew you came from Pinterest, we changed the social share bar. We grew the Pinterest button because our goal was let's get him here. Let's have him read that content and let's have him share it again so that it goes back out. The whole feedback loop was really about how to, how to get people to share content, how to get content to be distributed completely yeah. foreign to kind of how we think today. And I think like what, what basically came out of it is that, you know, this investment in media companies, where the currency was scale in order to, you know, monetize via clicks. Like that's the way we sort of think right. of clicks. Like clicks was like the phrase you just always heard. Right, right, right. Exactly. You wanted clicks, you wanted refers, you wanted social shares. Um, that's changed. Now look, like what, what's an interesting discussion to have now is what we're seeing with the subscription economy isn't so far off. Right. If you look at venture story time uh, in the 2010s as, OK, let's invest in media companies that's going to help them scale and then we're going to make money off advertising. Well, now we're doing a similar thing. Right. We're investing in subscription backed media companies with the hopes that if we structure them correctly, they'll start to accumulate consumer revenue on an MRR or ARR or however you want to look at it. And then that's going to pay back. Right. So we're kind of just like the same media mentality, different media business, but not necessarily kind of the right way to go about and structure such things. So like yeah. what I like, like one of my favorite lines from Andy Weissman, who's, um, who's, who's, who's a VC at Union Square and just, you know, prolific with a lot of thinking, um, you know, over, over the years is he always says what's past his prologue, right? Like you have to look at what's happening before in order to kind of see how the future is being created. And every time you have that in the back of your head, you start to see things. So what's been amazing is 10 years later, I think about what happened on HuffPost. You think about how we structured ourselves. You think about what the currency and value was, what our relationship was to readers, what our relationship was to advertisers. And now a decade later, right? The players changed, but the game is still the same. And if you could really kind of identify those things, then you could actually make some sort of impact or evolve and not end up in the same place, you know, that we were uh, at that midpoint. Yeah. So a couple, that's, that's great. A couple sort of immediate things. The way I try to explain the whole idea of the way the sort of click economy looked differently is I ask people, try, try to remember who the reporters or writers you were sharing back when you were in college. No one does. I do not remember. I spent all my time on BuzzFeed. I spent all my time on HuffPost. I genuinely do not remember. Other than op-ed columnists, right? So obviously I remember Thomas Friedman, you know, all those sort of people, the New York Times especially, but I don't actually remember any of the reporters, but today I know Ben Smith at the New York Times. You know Taylor Lorenz at the New York Times. You know, there's always sort of people who are building their brands. This is where the conversation is eventually going to go. But you really have seen this shift um, in where the value is going. And it just sort of illustrates that back in, you know, 13, how much the value was on sort of the brand irrespective of the sort of person. But I do want to talk about your subscription point, because I think this is something that people have probably started noticing. You know, listener, you've probably noticed that whenever you go to a site now, you're hitting some sort of subscription paywall. Either it's a hard paywall and you get nothing free or you get sort of, a, you know, three, four or five. But I'd say the difference between 
going all in on paywalls now. And what was happening in 2010 is that at least now, if you get someone to subscribe to your publication, you own the customer relationship. Because the problem with the old model, and this is sort of gross, because I, I like the way you transitioned the, the venture story time to what actually happened is, if you're saying, hey, we're the Huff Post, like we have mastered the art of creating content on Facebook that then gets super shared and we get a billion clicks and you get an amazing exit. What you're really saying is we've tethered ourselves to a platform that we don't own or control. And if that platform, say, because Mark Zuckerberg makes some pivots in 2016, trends away from that skill set, we'll lose money. So I think that's a critical difference here because you were investing all the money in, you know, advertising, but you still didn't own it. At least you own it now. Like, what do you think about that dynamic at least? Yeah. I mean, there's, I try to, I try to poke holes in the argument that people, cause people are obsessed over email addresses and how valuable they are. And I try to, I try to be somewhat contrarian to it in order for like my own mental gymnastics, because you don't want to just buy into anything, especially in media. Um, I am, I am pretty convinced of that argument. I think uh, the role that Substack plays for these uh, individual creators to be able to not just broker a relationship, but to be able to have that email, to be able to have that personal touch, I think is insanely valuable. Um, we see that too, right? Like as um, people subscribe to the Washington Post or as people subscribe to the New York Times and, you know, a lot of these larger brand publishers, I mean, those, those readers, you know, become super fans, become way more engaging, right? Are, are, are kind of more long-term, right? Versus, you know, others, others that may be passerbys. Um, some things that I would think through, though, is that the relationship with the reader is definitely stronger than if you were renting land on, you know, Facebook or um, not, not, not knowing that reader, not knowing your consumer. Um, and I've seen that personally, and I think that it's actually an amazing thing to go through. I don't know how many Substacks you pay for. Um, but in the beginning, four. I paid, yeah, <laughs> four. So like, so like in the beginning, I paid for a bunch because I was just so, you know, I'm just so enamored with this space. Um, but after a few weeks, you know, cause I'm not, I mean, again, we could go through this too. I just taught a, I just taught a class um, uh, at a very well-known uh, kind of journalism uh, uh, school uh, and university. And what's, and what was amazing when I asked that class, I'm like, how many people subscribe to newsletters? Out of the 30, it was like seven. So you how many like just, pay? Just, oh, just subscribe. Just subscribe. That's and fascinating. Then, then, Twitter isn't real life. <laughs> I know. And then, and then out of pay, it was like three. Mm -hmm. And then no one even read them. People were saying, yes, they read the headlines, which sounds so familiar, right? You want to talk about a decade ago, you know, yeah. you would read a headline and share it, right? Now you're reading yeah. a headline and you're marketing it as read. Um, but what's what's a what's a positive trend? I'd say in the subscription ecosystem, especially in the creator market, um, that doesn't exist within larger brands, is that personal relationship. Like when I paid for these Substacks, I didn't think about the relationship that I was going to build with that independent creator or group of independent creators and how that evolves so quickly. And when you want to unsubscribe how painful <laughs> personally it is to yeah. do that. It is so easy for me to unsubscribe to the times and resubscribe or unsubscribe to Netflix. Nobody in the world does that, but like you, you can imagine when yeah. it's a brand. That's quibby, but you know. <laughs> right, right, right. But when there's like a brand and a larger kind of like, 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 like mass amount of people, you're just like, whatever. It's when it's personal. a one-on-one -on -one person and you're like breaking up with them, Right, and you're saying I don't want to pay anymore, and then they engage you and ask why. It's very hard to kind of break that relationship. So, 
independent creators, especially ones that are like building community and following, have a huge opportunity and an advantage, I'd say, as they gain a subscriber to be able to then say, okay, let me make this as personal as possible. Let me understand the value that I could drive and things that I could build on those needs because it is going to be harder and it's something that they should be comfortable like like knowing it's going to be harder for me to break up with them than it is for me to break up with the bigger business. And that should be a strategic advantage. Now here's yeah. the negative. Now mm -hmm. here's the negative. These independent creators outside of like Ben Thompson, right. And like people who have been doing this for years are, are trying to master acquisition, right? They're saying, how do I get people to subscribe? How do I keep them engaged? How do I build that community? Okay. But retention for anyone who's built these business, you know, and I've built them at the post and, you know, there's a lot of like stuff around membership. They're completely different things, right? Acquisition and retention are completely different strategies, completely different businesses, completely different products. And what I, I'm curious about is like, as we start to move like months into this phenomenon, years into this phenomenon, how do independent creators adjust or identify the nuances between acquisition and retention, what they could be doing, what they need to do to evolve on their value. You know, I know like you spoke to Nathan, who's amazing yeah. uh, from the everything bundle, right? Like sure. They're thinking about how to grow, how to like grow audience and build more content, but they're also thinking about what's going to make people stick. And the idea that people are bundling and there's, you know, a Friday zoom call, like zoom call will lead you in. And there's, you know, all like, a weekly wrap up, right? And all of these things aren't coincidence, right? They're already thinking about, you know, in my mind, what they need to be doing and what they should be doing in order to continue to keep people engaged and interested, right? Because acquiring users is easy. If you're paying on your credit card, $10 a month for the first two, three months, four months, that's fine. You're a year into it. You're like, okay, I spent 150 bucks on this. Am I yeah. really using it? Is it valuable? Is it justified? No. All right. I'm out. And if I come back, I come back again. Right. Content is a content is a messy, slippery system. I mean, there's like another huge conversation that we could have, which is, is content even valuable, right? Like we had advertising tied to content and then that has changed and evolved. And now we have subscription tied to content. And, you know, I do believe the answer is yes, but I do believe that there's a lot more that goes into it than just publishing or creating something. Yeah. So I think right before the last main question before we get into sort of like the present, your sort of thoughts on the future is, um, and you've talked about this in other, other interviews, right? When you're, when you're at the Huffington Post, when you're, you're sort of at these sort of digital upstarts, the underlying idea is that the mainstream media is going to be disrupted by these quicker players, right? So, you know, in 2007, the New York Times was not the New York Times it was today. Obviously, pre-Bezos, the Washington Post was not the Washington Post. But obviously, you go from sort of that upstart space, and now you're sort of at the Post, um, which is also unique in the sense that it has a very positive relationship with Jeff Bezos, you know, a, a wealthy owner who's willing to invest, but also sort of drive it to becoming an actual tech company. Um, but the other thing that's sort of interesting about what goes on during this period is that there were a bunch of other, what I think you could sort of say is failed acquisitions by wealthy persons. So like wealthy people who sort of got in to the media business when it was at least very, and it's always sort of fashionable to do that, obviously, but the, the, there was always sort of issues. So can you just sort of speak to, and we'll hit five, you don't have to hit all five of your like, career pivots there, but like what it's like to transition from the upstart space to being very much at one of like the big three like publishers, you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Like, what is that like, especially given how your career started on Craigslist, right? Yeah, 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 no, totally. I mean, I think, 
The, the, um, well, one, I'm a boomerang at the post, right? So I, I, um, I joined the post back in 2015. I left to, uh, become CEO and founder of a, uh, blockchain media company called Poet. And then, um, you know, I came back uh, to the post to kind of build out this whole other, uh, group and, and new team. Um, and what I would say is that, and I kind of hinted at this earlier is that media Media has really evolved even in the past decade from what the purpose of a media company really is to um, how consumers value media companies to um, the definition of like what a media brand is and what should even be considered a brand. And mm -hmm. what I realized back in 2015, right, when I joined The Post, is that there is a reason why some of these media companies that exist are over a hundred years old, right? And when you're in an upstart, right? Or you're in a challenger brand, and I think you see this right now, right? With Substack and you saw it with Medium and you see it with others. A lot of challenger companies don't really take the time to truly understand, right? What makes the media companies that they're looking to, to disrupt valuable. Um, and when I started noticing, right, that, wow, like the role of a media company isn't just to distribute, well, and, and I'm, I didn't really think this way, I'm just creating a hypothetical. It's a, it's a narrative, like you gotta have a narrative. But, right, right, <laughs> but, like, but like the role of a media company was like to distribute content and to get clicks and to grow audience. Um, and that people were really starting to like focus on the reputation of a brand, that there was really this, this like idea of trust and quantifying trust and what that really meant. and and what that value became, I started to become really attracted to the idea of, oh, wow, right? There's like media companies and then there's media brands, right? And media brands are brands because they've stood the test of time, they've provided value, right? Their readers don't just like read them, but they're a part of them, they support them, right? All of those, adject all of those adjectives align it's with- It's the New Yorker tote bag thing, right? Like it means something broader than just the individual product. Exactly. So I realized, I mean, there was like a beautiful thing that happened, which was I really understood how new media was being constructed and built. Um, both at Huffington Post and both at, and, and at Rebel Mouse. At Rebel Mouse, we built the Dodo, we built Axios, we built a lot of new, new media companies. Um, and I was able to take that learning, again, at a time when I was at HuffPost, not thinking like a Washington Post was gonna be able to survive, right, in like this new world, to then being able to go to the Washington Post and really have the confidence of saying, I understand how to structure new media, I understand the value proposition and market, and now I'm going to be able to build that with incredible people on the back of, you know, a brand that's bigger than arguably like any, any of, you know, the U.S. newspaper media companies. I mean, them, the Journal and the Times. Um, and being owned by Jeff was a huge plus, right? Like that's, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd be a liar if I didn't say that that's what attracted me here. I mean, I'm a, I'm a technologist. I build product. Um, and the idea of being able to do that uh, at a company that's, you know, owned by Jeff Bezos with the reputation, um, you know, of, of the Washington Post and having an executive editor like Marty Barron was a no brainer. And I think that formula worked beautifully, like, like almost immediately, right? We, we created the R&D lab, we 
made our business profitable. Um, you know, we really started to spin up the idea of digital subscriptions. We started to build new businesses like Arc Publishing, where we license software, um, or new revenue businesses like Zeus Technology. And uh, it became very apparent that when you have the power and reputation of a media brand, right, that people love, then you can easily enter other markets or more easily enter other markets off the heels of that brand. So yeah. going to the Washington Post, I could be like, we're going to become a SaaS company that's going to compete with Adobe Photoshop. It's like bullshit, right? Like no one's ever <laughs> going to be able to do that. But we built software for the newsroom that then blew up. Now Arc Publishing is powering over a thousand publishers from workflow management to creator management. And it's a massive business. Um, no, one, no one would ever think that a traditional publisher could compete with the likes of a Google or any of the ad tech companies. And with Zeus, we were able to do it because we're the Washington Post. We leverage the Post as a beta environment. We test it here. It grows our business. Every other media publisher is going to say, shit, I want that, right? Like if that's going to work for you, we don't have the resources that the Washington Post has. So if this software is actually helping your business, then yes, that makes sense. And it yeah. really started to become an amazing formula to basically say, let's leverage our reputation. Let's build amazing products. Let's, let's, let's build audience and then rinse and repeat. And, um, and now, right, as you see, right, like I saw this on the crypto side when I was at Poet and Civil, you know, when we were kind of going head to head with Civil. Um, but, I, but like I see it now with Substack, right? Like, sure, like there's, there's, there's a ton of conversation about, you know, creators going independent and building their own businesses. And I've been, and I've written about this and I'm very vocal about it. But don't, don't overlook why creators want to be at media companies. Don't overlook why consumers trust and readers love media companies. Because until you identify that and build, a, build something competitive to that, you won't disrupt it. Right. And yeah. what's, 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 what's a common practice is let's see what these big media companies are doing wrong and we're going to do that right. And what they should be doing is saying, what do these media companies do right? And let's do that better. Yeah. And I think this is the perfect pivot into your current work. Um, Jessica Lesson, um, who leads the information had this like really, really excellent quote. When industries get disrupted, people get the unit economics wrong. And the winners are the ones who correctly identify the new unit of value first, right? So this sort of is this idea, and she goes on to explain in the article that if we're talking around 2010, 2011, 2012, 13, the unit of value was the individual article, which you sell at scale to make money of advertising. This also relates to the whole like micropayments debate, which I don't want to get into right now, but I'm pretty sure like we're aligned with like on the same sort of scale of it. Um, but sure. I think what your work would sort of argue is that we're seeing a shift in the unit of economic value from like the individual article and maybe even the individual subscription to the actual creators and the writers themselves. So this is sort of, you know, your whole, and then this goes to your, your side as a former, you know, music journalist, right? This idea that media companies should lean into the ideas that they are these really conveners and curators of talent. And that basically means you're a record label, right? Because I think a quote you use is, you know, uh, at a certain point, Ben Smith at the Times is a rock star and the New York Times is the label who's representing him. So can you sort of explain this idea a little bit? Because I think it's how I came across you because it was, it was this amazing piece that y'all should check out on Medium. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So, um, yeah, like I agree with Jessica um, that that the atomic unit, right? You like was and forever, you know, up until basically this point was content, um, and now you're seeing um, not just the value move over to 
creators, but actually the business models evolve and adjust based on that relationship as well. Um, the opportunities that I see, I kind of see it as like both sides of the fence. Um, one is, is that, and this kind of goes into what I was saying before, um, in challengers really understanding, you know, why there's value on the incumbents. Um, media companies provide a lot of value to creators, to creator support, uh, to the comfort of creators. Um, and I basically bucketed that into two things, right? Creator confidence and creator comfort. Um, you know, creator confidence is, okay, I'm writing about something and, you know, I want to be, or designing or whatever. And I want the benefit of an editor. I want the benefit of a designer. I want the benefit of a brand. I want the benefit of their distribution. Um, by having that structure, it makes me a better creator, right? Because I am now mm -hmm. confident to do what I can do. And I don't have to worry about everything else because I have that support. Um, then there's creative comfort, right? Which is basically like, I like health insurance, pretty important. <laughs> I like libel if I'm writing, you know, investigative journalism, right? These are pretty important things to have. And media companies have always provided these things, but they have never really been the core, um, the, the, the core source of value, right? Like there, there's never really been an emphasis on like, this is why you work for a media company, right? So it's the default one, Exactly. So, so one angle of media companies as record labels, right? When you think about a media company as A and R, um, is that what's A and R role? Sorry. So, like, so, like, in the music business, in the record label business, there's A and R, which is arts and repertoire, and they basically just help manage, um, like, all talent, talent distribution, talent delivery, um, and kind of that whole entire area of artists, like artist management, um, and. Media companies essentially are that, right? Like you look at what's happening with the New York Times right now um, and to the Ben Smith example, right? They're recruiting talent. They're thinking about how to maintain and grow it. They're leveraging it to grow their audience. They're then distributing it and monetizing it and then rinse and repeat, right? Like they are acknowledging that our value is, you know, in a bunch of different buckets, but one large one is talent. And by focusing, um, uh, not just managing and recruiting talent, but even like cultivating, right? And growing talent is is kind of critical to our success. Um, and you're seeing some things change there, right? You're seeing their morning newsletter now for the first time ever has an op-ed columnist name against it. Or you, you know, when you think of the daily, right? You're not just thinking of the New York Times, right? You're thinking of, you're thinking of the talent behind. Michael um, Barbaro. Like that's, I, you, you, I literally think of his glasses when I, like when I think of the daily and exactly, I hear it. Exactly. That's the brand. And, and, <laughs> Right. And like, that shouldn't be something that media companies run away from, right? Like, that's tremendously valuable. I think traditionally, a media company would be like, well, we don't want our talent to get too big, because if they get too big, they're just going to leave. Um, but there needs to be an alternate mindset. And with that alternate mindset, you need to start thinking about how you build a business around that investment, right? And what that could really look like. And I think that the idea of like A&R, or media companies as record labels allows you to not just think about, okay, how do we grow and manage talent? But what does it mean for us to co-own IP, right? When someone leaves, but we have joint IP, is there still return on that value, right? There's like crazy, crazy, crazy areas that you could get into, which is like, how do you actually invest in talent, right? Are there models to be created where, you know, you do build up talent and even if they do leave, you have this relationship that's lasting forever. Um, and there's a ton of opportunities there. And I think we're at like stage one um, mm -hmm. of kind of thinking about what that looks like from the media side. I think Axios is another great example. Axios 
basically built a new media company across a new medium platform like newsletters. Um, but they said, people are going to sign up for us because of the talent. Talent has existing audiences. We want them to leverage that audience. And we also want to help them build their own brand. And, you know, Jim Roy and co built a great business uh, structure around doing that. People love writing there. They like creating there. They're building their own personal brand in accordance with building, you know, the Axios brand and it's a win-win. And I think they're proving that it can be done. Um, On the other side, right, is different, right? On the other side is when people go independent, what does that economy look like, right? Where you're a writer or you're an entrepreneur and you go out on your own, what are the services and products and business models that are going to be built in order to accommodate that? That's a whole different thing. I don't know if you have that as a question, so I don't want to just keep rambling. But that's- yeah, no, 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 please. Like this is this is the format. <laughs> exactly. So like so like the first the first article I wrote was media companies as record labels, which really focused on how media companies should be thinking about the creator economy and how they can best position themselves and their business in order to not just take advantage, but I think win. Right. I think media companies are really set to just further emphasize the value and investment that they already put into their business but really start to open up opportunities for their talent alongside everything that they do today. And I listed out there and basically what we just spoke through. And, and a quick, before we, before we get into sort of the creator side, I think it would be helpful to sort of put some, you know, put some meat on the bones of what we're sort of talking about here. So like perfect. Like, so for example, like what would this operationally actually look like? Right. So like, I think of, for example, Buzz, like, okay, perfect example. The most obvious one we've talked about before is like the collar daddy situation where you had these, you had these, you know, you had these two like really strong creators who had the idea they were getting paid, but like eventually there was this kerfuffle over like who owned the IP and that ended up getting resolved its own way. But like under the model you're sort of talking about, you're sort of saying like, hey, like what if you would sort of come to them from the start and says, hey, like what you own X percentage of this thing, we're taking equity in it because obviously like our brand Barstool is what's going to blow, blow this up. So I think that's, th- that. I think that's a good way of thinking what this would actually look like if you try to do this at scale at different verticals. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely, it's definitely unconventional to how media companies are set up today. Also, I think what's important to highlight is that media companies, how they're structured today, aren't just for the best benefit of a media company, which is also like often thought of, but misunderstood, right? Like media companies often lose money on that creator IP with the investment that they put into it, right? They're not necessarily just banking off of that IP. So there was an example, um, I forgot the name of the show, but like- The BuzzFeed one, right? Yeah, the BuzzFeed one, great. (laughs) We don't know the brand, but it's the BuzzFeed thing. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So the BuzzFeed situation was basically like, there were these podcast hosts, the podcast blew up. Now they want to figure out how they get on IP because Buzzfeed's monetizing, right? Like their name and their value. And you read that headline and you're like, totally right. Like I could, and it's tied to them. That's the, that's the, that's the key thing. Right. And this is actually, especially why I think we see these fights with podcasts specifically because podcasts are the definition of a medium where it's like, Hey, like this is Marshall and Sager's podcast. Like I think that sort of format, it makes it very unique. So it's very hard to say like, well, you could leave and it's still sort of our thing. That's where the controversy happens. Exactly. But what's important to recognize is that, you know, and again, I don't have any insider knowledge here, but what I assume is like those creators could have created anywhere, right? But basically BuzzFeed gave them a studio, gave them funding, gave them setup, helped them monetize, helped them distribute, right? Like 
like not 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 looking at BuzzFeed as a distribution monster, right? Is 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 silly, right? They are. So like you like you have to imagine that you know the investment that BuzzFeed made in order to do that, right? Tied to that creator was a very 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 heavy expense, right? And was mm-hmm. just part of the deal. And now, unfortunately, like because of how things set up, you want to revisit those things, but they would have been structured differently. I think to yeah. answer your question, there should be there should be tiers, right, of options for creators when they want to create under the media company umbrella. One I'll say is like media companies are insanely valuable, will continue to be insanely valuable, especially the good ones when it comes to brand reputation, distribution, and creative comfort and support, right? Like those Mm -hmm. things allow a creator to just go in and do it. Um, But there should be ways, right, where you're able to say, okay, like, maybe I am a known, a known name, right? Or a known talent or coming in with some existing value IP. Now I want to come in and I want to basically say, look, I don't need a full salary. I don't need full benefits, right? Like this is what it'll cost, but I want to own 50% of the IP. And you go through a talent negotiation the way that you'd go through any talent negotiation. And I yeah. think in that case, you start to say, yes, we co-create the IP. BuzzFeed, you help me with distribution. You help me with you know uh, uh, studio time and production, right? But like, I'm going to be the writer, I'm going to get the talent right on our show. And I'm going to, you know, also focus on this and we're going to own it and you just agree. And then in that case, it becomes this amazing kind of setup where you're both working together towards this common goal, right? Like there's an investment from the media company to help grow this show and grow this talent because they own 50% of it. And this creator is the same because they own 50% of it. And if they leave and they use the IP elsewhere, anything else happens, it's covered. Right. So like, That's kind of the setup that I'm thinking is like right now, media companies are basically set up to be like, you know, you're a salaried employee, you get medical benefits, you know, and you get all of these kind of value, value benefits that we as as add as being a media company. It's just creating a new structure and a new setup in order to like have a more contractual 1099 type employee that, you know, is, is, is kind of talent based, but, Hmm. and this will seg into the creator, the creator side of things. Creators, as far as I could see, right, and in all my observations and in all of my like research and everything, um, creators like creating for media companies. Nine nine point nine 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 out of ten like the situation, right? They like having yeah. a platform. They like creating on their beat. They like um, kind of the benefits that they get out of it, right? Like like they the mentality of, well, I just want to focus on creating and let people do other, like let everyone else do the rest. That's a media company scenario. That's not a going independent scenario. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing, and you see it through Nathan, you see it through Lenny, you see it through um, like Jacob Donnelly, right? Like all of these different folks are, these aren't like people that worked at media companies that are leaving and saying, I'm going to go out on my own, right? I'm a writer or I'm a designer and I'm gonna now go out on my own. It's the inverse, right? Yeah. It's, it's entrepreneurs, product people, tech people, but people that have like a very interesting vantage point and backgrounds that understand or have the desire, I'd say, to grow a business and they're jumping into it and saying, I'm gonna create, I'm gonna deliver something of value. I have a unique uh, kind, of, kind of like point of view and product that I could deliver to the end user. And I'm going to own it all, right? I'm going to own the business of myself. That is not the traditional mentality of someone that works in a newsroom. That's the traditional mentality of an entrepreneur or someone who runs a business. And that's why I think what we're seeing 
for the most part is like people that are going to create their sub stacks, people that are going and creating their own like, like Picos or interest, like, like, or WordPress or MailChimp's. Sure. Like some of them are coming from newsrooms or coming from media companies, but the ones that we're talking about and looking at that we're finding the most interesting, especially in the sub stack world are actually people that are coming from the tech sector, the business sector, right. That have kind of like a deeper, uh, more niche, kind of expertise in a new area of focus that they are then able to bring to the table and are also trying to think about how they manage and value, right, their relationship with their readers, which is like a ton of work, right? Accounting, finance, yeah. audience development, distribution, that's stuff that really distracts you from creating. So um, that's been also like insanely fascinating to watch. And that's kind of the second piece I wrote called the Renaissance Creator, which is like, we're constantly trying to think about like, oh, who are great people I read or follow or listen to, right? Or watch, um, and when are they gonna go solo? And what's really happening under our eyes is new creators <laughs> coming about that you never would have recruited or never would have thought of that are basically saying, well, I wanna run a business, I have something interesting to say, and I'm gonna have a platform that's gonna kind of allow me to, to kind of build, build a brand around that. Yeah, so two last questions here. Um, so first question is, I just look at this space and I'm just convinced that what's happening of newsletters is just basically a repeat of blogging in the 2000s. So obviously it's much easier to monetize a newsletter than a blog. So it's a little different, but the underlying idea to me seems to be that like, if we look at all the young rising superstars of sort of like the blogging space, like actually I think pretty much all of them with the exception of Andrew Sullivan with his various pivots basically ended up at mainstream media companies or they actually founded like venture back companies of their own. Um, so it just seems to me that what's gonna happen given your framework is that you're gonna see a bunch of people go independent for a while, especially when they're younger. But guess what? You're gonna have a kid, you're gonna sort of get tired of the grind for a while, and you're gonna sort of get acquired by the New York Times or maybe sort of a joint revenue share. Maybe there's someone who's in the political space who the Washington Post wants to do something sort of with. Like, I, I just don't see a world where this all just doesn't rebundle under new assumptions. Because the key thing about blogging is I'm not, my question isn't to suggest that blogging failed, because blogging changed the nature of what sort of these places sort of looked, right? So the looser style, the more focus on personality that definitely came like wonk blog right with Ezra Klein at the Washington Post like wonk blog would not have existed without blogging which then led to Vox but like what do you think about this general storyline yeah yeah I mean I think uh I think that the most interesting the most interesting thing that's coming out of kind of this momentum I'd say is the unbundling and rebundling of work um, mm -hmm. or the structures, I'd say, of like what a traditional media company looks like. Um, I think we're seeing it now in local news, right? Where local, um, what we think about as local news are like brands, right? Like, I don't know where you're based. Oh, you're based in DC. I'm based yeah. in, um, I'm based in Jersey, right? So the traditional local paper was the Asbury Park Press uh, or the Star Ledger. And what's happened now, right, is that like the Asbury Park Press and the Star Ledger um, they're not local enough, right? People want very, consumers want very local coverage, right? They're going to Facebook or Nextdoor or even Patch to get that information, but yeah. they're also not national enough, right? So they're kind of like stuck in this purgatory because they're, they're having to manage the fixed cost of their old business, which is still moving, but they're not able to kind of quickly lean into the new business. And what you're seeing with the acceleration of kind of what's happening with the creator economy is that media companies, as we knew them, um, are completely like reinventing their identity and the way that they could be structured. So for example, 
you could see, um, you know, an Andrew Sullivan who used to work at, you know, New York Magazine, let's say, and like was like, you know, a writer, right, 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 like a column writer for them, is now going to Substack. Um, and say he builds his own brand, right? I don't know what the plan is, but say he starts to build his own media company out of that. I doubt he's going to hire inside counsel. I doubt he's going to hire editors. I doubt he's going to hire designers. I doubt he's going to hire accounting, right? And like what they're going to be thinking of rather is saying, okay, like what do we actually need to own that helps drive our business forward? Yeah. And then what things could we network or license, right? So like, so the biggest opportunity um, or one of the bigger opportunities, I think, when it comes to kind of what's happening in the creator economy with the unbundling and rebundling of work and the definition of a media organization is kind of saying like traditional media organizations would house editors, designers, researchers, accounting, um, you know, distribution services, like legal finance. And now I think what you're seeing is that a media company could just be, you know, X amount of creators with Y amount of support. And then being able to license the services you need for legal or for finance or the support services that you may need for editorial or design. And I think we'll start seeing a lot of emerging businesses coming out of that side, which are trying to think of how do we build a more scalable network way that allows independent creators to get the services of all of these different um, all of these different areas, which is what I think is going to be a huge thing, regardless of what wins and what doesn't win, that's definitely going to be something that's going to impact the way that we think about operations and media for the next you know, decade plus. So last question for our last minute here. What We get a lot of questions about people who are sort of getting into journalism and are super pumped about the creator economy in a, in a variety of different levels, right? With podcasts, newsletters, et cetera. But to your point, brands and media companies have a good value. So if you were to sort of outline how you think a sort of 22 year old or 25 year should be thinking about their career in this space. What would that look like from your perspective today? Yeah. So, so my, my, uh, this kind of goes full circle, right? Like, like I have a, I have an optimistic um, perspective on this industry. I think we need very smart people um, from various uh, kind of areas of background in order to help drive the journalism business forward. Um, what I'd say is that, uh, very, very kind of unconventional backgrounds are often very beneficial, right? Like coming from a product background, design background, legal background, um, and then getting into kind of the journalism and media space. I find that a lot of great ideas come out of that. Um, one thing that I often say to people that are coming into this business is that um, kind of like innovation really happens when you put non-experts in expert situations, right? Like people have tunnel vision, right? They kind of like think they know and kind of evolve and continue on that path and you have someone come in with a beginner's mind um, and say, well, why do we do it that way? Why should we be set up that way? Aren't there other ways that we can be thinking about this? And they're the kind of catalyst for that disruption that really kind of edge us into this new space. And that's like literally how Zeus was created. That's how a lot of products were created at the post where people coming in and just thinking differently about how things currently were set up and not just maintaining that status quo. So um, what I'd say is that journalism is more important than ever. The media business is more important than ever. Um, it's going through a bunch of different iterations, but they're being written and defined by the people that are working within it. So anyone coming up should 
kind of think about um, what their impact could be there. I strongly encourage them to build their own brand, right? Like write things down, spend time, whether that's creating your own Substack or even tweeting, but really start to learn, study, put yourself out there. Writing is, you know, very good for creative thinking. Um, and they'd be very surprised, you know, um, how much relationship building, how much opportunity comes out of just them putting their thoughts and um, kind of experiences and thinking out there. So, um, and I'm always available too and looking for bright people to speak to. So please reach out. Great. Jared, thanks a lot. This is really great. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I had a blast. Hey, hope you guys really enjoyed the episode. Like I said, we are going to be experimenting with bonus content like this in the next few weeks. So definitely leave us a note at realignmentpod at gmo.com if there's any sort of other tech-related topics that will be the focus of Reboot that we should focus on. And like I said before, if you are interested in this conversation, go to rebootconference.org to learn more and sign up for the conference. It's going to be a really great time. We'll see you next week.